please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of John, the book of John. Today we'll be in chapter 18, and we're looking at verses 1 through 14 as we make our way up until Advent through the Gospel of John. If you don't have a Bible with you, those 14 verses are reprinted on the back of your bulletin. And as you turn there, it's helpful to know where we're at in the Gospel. Uh, this is occurring on the night Jesus was betrayed. Jesus just finished his longest recorded prayer, the high priestly prayer, and now it is time for him to get arrested. As we read these verses, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ will be more clear to our hearts. So before I read, and I'll be reading just the first three verses to start, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Lord, you sing over us. You carried us here today in your arms. You're with us, and you know how this past week went. You know the victories we had, the tears we cried, the patience we needed. You see it all? You know our hearts more than we know our own hearts. And so we're grateful now that as we open your word, we anticipate the meal you've prepared for us. You lovingly and carefully prepared your words for us. This text you picked for us from before we were born. So now, Lord, give us eyes to see your glory, ears to hear from you, and help our hearts leap in joy as we see what you did for us through your Son, Jesus. Apply it to our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we thank you and pray. Amen. The Gospel of John, chapter 18, I'm going to begin by reading the first three verses. This is the good and glorious word of our Lord. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. It's quite the scene, isn't it? It's quite the next thing to happen after a prayer. And in our text this morning, in the 14 verses we're going to look at, we're going to see how John recorded one of the most important moments in Jesus' life. Him willingly submitting his life over to those who would arrest him. And, and John writes his gospel account with artistic mastery. He's not making any details up, of course. Every word in Scripture is true. However, his prose here is full of such beautiful and intriguing contrasts 
And as we see them pop off of the pages of our Bibles, each contrast is going to make Jesus all the more glorious in our minds as we seek to worship him today and this week. And so in our text, the passage has four contrasts, and the first one is right here in verses 1 through 3. The first contrast is the light, the light. In verses 1 through 3, the light of the world is approached by men with little lights. The light of the world is approached by men with little lights. Look at verse 3 again. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers, stop there, that's a Roman group of soldiers. We don't know exactly how many. It was most likely at least dozens of Roman soldiers. It's potentially hundreds of soldiers. It was a big week, Passover week in Jerusalem. The Roman guard was ready. They wanted to uh, snuff out any sedition, any, any uprisings, any military coups that would happen. The soldiers were all ready to go. And so this could have been hundreds, but more likely dozens at least of Roman soldiers. Now, the middle of verse 3. Not only that, and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. So that would be the people representing the power and authority and influence of the Jewish people, of the people of God. So you've got the Roman world, the world, and you've got the Jewish world, a Jewish group of officials and authorities. And what are they there with? Flowers and candy. <laughs> no, they're there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Judas, one of the twelve disciples, had betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. This is his moment to shine. He's already gotten money for selling Jesus out, and he probably wants more. And Jesus was a controversial figure. Judas knows that, you know, Jesus is causing a lot of trouble. He's riling a lot of people up, and everyone knows I was with them. Maybe if I sell Jesus out, I'll get out of this not only with a couple coins in my pocket, but without any legal troubles going forward. Of course, in the Gospel of John, this is the final moment we hear about Judas. In the other Gospels, we learn that Judas is the first of the twelve to die. Selling Jesus out is a dangerous thing. So we have in this garden a betrayer, an old friend who walked with Jesus and ministered with Jesus for years, who has sold him out. A friend who betrayed, and the Roman soldiers, and the Jewish authorities. What is John pointing out here? The whole world is coming to get Jesus. The whole world is coming to get Jesus. And it's nighttime. And what do they have? Lanterns and torches and weapons. This sounds like a fairy tale, right? Like there's an ogre on the loose and the villagers gather an angry mob. The only thing missing is pitchforks. What is going on? John knows what he is writing here. At this point in the story, it helps us to remember how John started the gospel. The beginning of the Bible is Genesis 1-1, in the beginning. Well, the beginning of the Gospel of John, the story, the narrative that John is telling us also starts with in the beginning. John has in his mind, as he's writing, particularly John 18, the fact that he knows that this story connects to what happened in Genesis. In the beginning, in the beginning. And in Genesis 1, the first thing that comes on the scene you have the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. They've always been there for all of eternity past. But then what's the first thing that comes onto the scene? 
light. Let there be light. So light steps in on the scene in Genesis 1. And in John 1, Jesus steps onto the world scene as the light. John 1, 9, the true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So Genesis 1, John 1 parallels. And here in John, they're in a garden. And in Genesis 1 through 3, there's a garden. But that's the garden where our first parents sinned. The first Adam sinned. And the first Adam in that garden, after he and his wife sinned, had to hide from God. And so you have in Genesis 1, Adam, the first Adam hiding from God. Now in John 18, you have Judas coming to get God in the garden, the light of the world. But Jesus isn't hiding either, because the first Adam's sin led to death, and the second Adam, Jesus, was going to defeat death. So this garden is the perfect start for the finale of the work of Jesus on earth. Him willingly handing himself over to the authorities to go through what he went through on the cross, which we just sang about. Jesus is the light of the world. And the ones without light have these pitiful little torches and lanterns. It's quite the contrast, isn't it? The light of the world arrested by soldiers with flickering, fading little candles. Those lights would be out by the next morning, and the light of the world Jesus still lives, doesn't he? Quite the contrast. If your world lacks light and life and hope and truth, a torch isn't going to help you. Leaving the lights on at night isn't going to help you. You need the light of the world to step into your darkness as well. You need Jesus, the light of the world. He came to bring light. He came to be light. He came to defeat the darkness. Do you know him? Many are stuck in the dark, but the light of the world has come. That's the first contrast in these first three verses. The light, the light of the world, Jesus, arrested by men with small, weak lights. The second contrast is the Word. The second contrast is the Word. This is in verses 4 through 9, and we see the Word of God, Jesus himself and his words. So the Word of God versus the weapons of this world. That's the contrast, the Word. Look at verse 4 through 9. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, not caught off guard, not surprised, this wasn't plan B, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. I love that this big group of Roman soldiers and Jewish authorities and Judas the betrayer is all coming to get Jesus, and Jesus is the one interrogating them. The weapons of this world have all been gathered against Jesus, and they are no match for the Word of God. They're no match for Him. The weapons of this world fashioned against us cannot touch us if we are in Christ. 
I love it. He's the one asking the questions. He says, who do you seek? And they say, Jesus. And he says, I am he. And they fall over. Then he asks them again, who do you seek? And they say, Jesus. And he says, I told you, I am he. Maybe they didn't fall over again, but I bet their knees were wobbling. We don't know. And then Jesus, always thinking of others, says to them, let my friends go. You've come here for me. Let my disciples go. Now, when Jesus says, I am he, it is not an accident at all. If you know your Bibles, you know that there are four accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And John is most famous for the I am statements. When you see I am in the New Testament, especially in John, John is doing something very important with these phrases. In John 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. In John 8, I am the light of the world. In John 10, I am the door. In John 10, I am the good shepherd. In John 11, I am the resurrection in the life. In John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In John 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. All in the gospel of John. And most powerfully of all of them in John 8, 58. There's a discussion about all the Jews' favorite patriarch, Abraham. And what does Jesus say? Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, he doesn't say, I was. He says, before Abraham was, I am. The eternally existent second person of the Trinity, Jesus the Christ, has always been. And he's saying to them, I am. So Jesus asks the soldiers a question, and he knows they're going to ask, we're looking for Jesus, and he gets ready to say, I am he, and they fall over. I am he is the title of this sermon, because it's the most powerful line in this story. It isn't an accident. Jesus meant to say it that way. John meant to record it that way, and our hearts are meant to hear these words today from this text. I am he. What are we seeing happen in the Bible? The I am is ready to be arrested. The light of the world is ready to walk into darkness. The bread of life is ready to give his body so that we can eat the bread of life the door is ready to die so we can go through the open door. The good shepherd is ready to lay down his life for the sheep. The resurrection is ready to die so that we could be resurrected. All of that is in this statement. All of that is going on. And at that word, dozens or hundreds of well-armed soldiers fall to the ground because I am is here. It's a shocking moment. It's so powerful. It's so powerful that I'm going to tell a story that is so different in context from this that it pales in comparison. But this is one of those lines that has changed the world. I am he. Growing up, if you're new here to Cornerstone, you don't know this. If you've been around any amount of time, you know that I'm a Star Wars fan. Okay? Or at least I used to be. We'll see what happens in the future of Star Wars, but... What, what's the most, one of the most famous lines in all of movie history? I looked at the top 50 movie quotes of all time, top 100 movie quotes of all time. What is it? When Darth Vader says to Luke, I am your father. 
Luke is shocked. The viewers are shocked. The world of Star Wars is shocked when that news comes down because you realize, as Luke realizes, that his dad, that changes everything. There's so much more going on in the story. Now, that's a, a one on a scale from one to 100. This is a 100. Jesus really said this. It's not a story. The Jews knew their history. Only one person has ever been referred to as I am, and that's God himself. In Exodus chapter 3, when God reveals himself to Moses, here's the exchange. Genesis 3 and verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? In other words, God, how do you want the world to know you? How will you identify yourself to your people? Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And then he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. So the I am is God himself. And in John 18, God himself has stepped into the world. He's in the garden. He's there in human flesh, ready to die to reverse the curse. You know, the soldiers bring torches and weapons. Sounds scary, right? I mean, I know it's a little dark in here because it's a dark and dreary day, but if people came in right now with torches and weapons, wouldn't you be terrified? Now imagine the situation. Imagine it here. People come storming in the back of the doors there with torches and weapons. And then someone here stands up and says, I am. And they all fall over. Could you imagine the power of a person like that? That's what Jesus is doing. He is the I am. That's who is here. So the contrast is between the weapons and power and authority and might and influence of the world and the simple word of Jesus, I am he. The word of God is powerful. Do you believe it? Do you believe that the words of God are powerful? Or would you rather have a sword and a lantern than God's word? Would you rather have a lawyer and money than God's word? Would you rather have all the weapons of this world? Or would you rather have God's word? God's word has all the power. Jesus himself is the word of God. 1 John 4, 4 says, Little children, you who are from God have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. As you and I grow to believe that, that the words of Jesus and Jesus himself are the true source of power in this world, we will mature in Christ Jesus. We will grow in hope. We will grow in faith and endurance to make it through the trials of life as we trust the word of God. The second contrast was the word of Jesus versus the weapons of this world. But in our story, Peter, one of the most famous disciples, didn't quite get it yet. So the third contrast is the cup, the cup in verses 10 and 11. If you're like Peter, you, may, you want to pick up a sword, and that's what he does. In verses 10 and 11, the sword of man is contrasted with the cup of Jesus. Look at verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it 
and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Peter thought, ooh, there's tension. Uh-oh, there's war, right? And he brings out his sword. He cuts off Malchus's right ear, which means he got really close to an ugly situation. I mean, that was that close to getting really, really bad. Jesus says, let my people go, but there must have been tension. Peter pulls out what he thinks is the weapon they need. And Jesus says, put your sword away. In another gospel, we learn that Jesus heals Malchus's ear and restores it to health. But Peter is told by Jesus to put his weapon away because Jesus has a much more powerful weapon against the true enemies in this world. He has a cup to drink. Jesus' cup was the weapon that defeated weapons. The main enemies in our lives are actually not the Roman soldiers or Jewish authorities or betraying friends like Judas. The main enemies are sin, Satan, and death. How is a sword going to defeat that? But a cup can. Jesus makes this clear to Peter. Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus knows this was the plan. Jesus knows the cup he's about to drink. The plan was to have a sinless Savior die in the place of sinners on the cross and to bear the wrath of God so that we could be spared from it. And the sacrifice of Jesus is so much more powerful than anything Peter could have done with a sword. I mean, think about it. Jesus was going to go to the cross. A picture of a cross now today, I saw a pumpkin with a cross on it over there. Maybe one of the kids was doing that in the children's ministry. And I thought, yeah, you know, the cross is a symbol of what? Hope, redemption, life, stories being remade, forgiveness of enemies. But when people saw a cross on a hill in the first century, it meant somebody was going to die that day in an awfully horrible way. A cross was a symbol like the electric chair is a symbol today. The cross is a symbol like a firing squad. The cross is a symbol to get it close into our hearts when you see militant, radical Islamists line up Christians on a beach and behead them. A cross had that kind of feeling to it. And Jesus wasn't going to pick up a sword. He was going to drink a cup and change a public symbol of torture and execution and shame into the global symbol of hope for redemption for sinners like us. That was his cup. It's better than a sword. This is the contrast. Jesus knew what the cup was and he was willing to go. When we sang a few minutes ago, lead me to the cross, we meant spiritually, right? Not, none of you got up and walked up to the cross. But Jesus willingly was led to an actual cross. And it's important for us to say this as we think about what Jesus was willingly about to do, that the hardest part of the cross was not what most people think of when they think of execution on a Roman cross. Jesus was going to face something more grueling than the physical pain and suffering of the cross. More than the arrest, more than the whip, more than the mockery, 
more than the nails, more than the humiliation, Jesus faced the penalty of all of our sins, the wrath of God. In, in Christ alone, the famous song, it says, Tell on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. That was the cup. The Father's wrath put on Jesus on the cross. Would you drink that cup? Could you drink that cup? No, none of us would, and none of us could, and none of us were qualified. None of us were sinless. None of us could stand in anyone else's place to drink that cup. Jesus was able, and he was willing. So having secured his friend's safety and stopped a sword fight, he willingly walks into custody, which is our fourth contrast, the arrest. In verses 12 through 14, the contrast is the arrest. The authority of the world is arrested by the authorities. Verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. So Jesus is arrested. He's willingly bound. Had he not been willing, they wouldn't have been able to bind him. Annas had served as the high priest in the past. He was related to Caiaphas, who was the current high priest. And the high priestly role was the Jewish spiritual leader of God's people. And here they are, Annas and Caiaphas, beginning a trial of God himself. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the authority of the world, is arrested by the authorities. Jesus, the true high priest, who just finished his high priestly prayer, is now taken before high priests who don't even believe that Jesus is the true high priest. There's irony there, but there's also danger. John wants us to know that everyone knows there's danger. Look at verse 14 again. Verse 14 hints at the coming danger. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Caiaphas there is talking about a political expediency. Uh, maybe since there's some execution plans, it would be easier on this Passover week if only one person died and the rest of the people could be let off so that the Jewish people know how benevolent the Romans are. And, and maybe if we just have one person die for the people, then we can get through this week without any major controversy. It was a political maneuver. It wasn't related to Jesus at all, but John knows and Jesus knows that one man is going to die for the people, and it's going to be Jesus. So this final contrast is thick with significance. We need a high priest. We need someone to represent us before God. But Caiaphas and Annas, they weren't the guys. They weren't one with God. They weren't going to die in the place of the people. We needed a high priest. Human high priests have all failed, but Jesus is the true high priest. So the high priest is turned over to the high priests, and the authority of the world is arrested by the authorities. The arrest is the fourth contrast in our text. In each one of these, we see how 
glorious Jesus is. The light of the world against these pitiful lights, the word of God against these weapons of the world, the sword that Peter wanted to use against the cup that Jesus was going to drink, and then the arrest as the authority of the world, the king of the world, lets himself be arrested. So for contrast, it's a beautiful text. It's a beautifully written passage. All those jump out. In fact, it would have been more fun to spend four weeks alone on that passage and see each of those contrasts. But as we close now, there was one more contrast hidden in plain sight. Did you see it? Did you see the contrast? Did you see how everyone reacted to Jesus? The biggest contrast of all is actually the responses to Jesus because the soldiers are the ones who fall down when Jesus says, I am he. Now they're falling down in fear, not in worship. But the appropriate thing to do if Jesus walked in the room is a lot closer to falling down on your knees than pulling out your sword and chopping an ear off. What does Peter do? He pulls out his sword. He wants to say, this is the way to go. What does Judas do? He's still trying to profit from the whole thing. So as we close and prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, which we're about to partake in, one question from this message for our hearts. Who is Jesus to you? As you've seen this glorious Savior do what he was called to do in the garden, what did your heart do? Which response to him made the most sense to your mind and heart? Who is Jesus to you? Let me ask you, friends. The light of the world who shines in the dark, is that who Jesus is for you? The light of the world who shines in the dark. Is he the word of God whose word can knock soldiers over? Is he the one who drinks the cup of God's wrath for us? Is he the high priest who allows fraud high priests to arrest him? Is he the glorious king of your life? If so, then today will be a glorious day no matter what you face. But let's be honest. The trials of life come. This world is full of darkness. Have you, like Judas, tried to profit from your relationship with Jesus? Are you in it for Jesus only when things are going really well, but when time gets tough, you forsake and forget about Jesus? Are you only in it with Jesus when the times are good? Are you trying to profit from your relationship with Jesus? Are you only content with him when life is all puppies and candy? Or maybe you're like Peter, and you know God's Word will get you through anything, but you don't pick this up. You pick the phone up. You send an email. You pick a sword up. You call a lawyer. You check your bank account. You look at your resume. You know a guy. And instead of going to God's Word to get you through the trials of life, you're trying to swing a sword like Peter. And you need Jesus to say, put those weapons down for a moment and trust me. I am he. Maybe that's what your heart needed to hear today. Or maybe you fall over in fear like the soldiers. When you think of Jesus and you think of your own sins, you only have fear. You have no hope. You have no, no reason to believe that you could be forgiven. Maybe you're cowering in fear right now. 
Well, stare at Jesus and know that he knows how you were going to react. And he still went to the cross so that if you cry out to him for salvation, you will have the light of the world and the word of God and his power in your life free of charge. By grace through faith, you will be saved and you will have hope in your life. Maybe as you stare at Jesus, as you see him willingly walk to his arrest, as you hear him say, I am he, you ask yourself, is my allegiance completely to Jesus? Does your heart leap in worship? I hope it does. I hope it will. I hope you'll consider as we take the Lord's Supper, what was your heart's response to Jesus as we watched him walk into his arrest for you? Consider that as we take the Lord's Supper. May God give us all hearts that leap in worship at the mere hearing of the words of Jesus. I am he. Let's pray. Lord, it's dim outside and it's raining. And it's not as bright in this room as it usually is. But you are the light of the world. Your Son was the true light that you sent into this world to walk into the darkness, to walk among sinners, and to die so that we could have your light, so that we could have your hope, so that we could have your word, so that we could be forgiven. Your son Jesus is so glorious. Your plan for him to drink this cup is so amazing. Thank you for loving us that much. Thank you that your son Jesus willingly walked into his arrest, knowing what was going to happen. Thank you that when he thought of dying for us, he said, yes, I'll go. And he died in our place so that we could be forgiven. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord, that I am came to save us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.